as you find your way back to your seats or grab your, fill up your cup of coffee uh, and you feel so inclined, you can turn to someone near you or just think about it in your head and think about the last time you called out sick from work, what was the excuse that you gave your boss? Ready? Go. I'm certain if you were honest, although it might not have been the last time, there's at least been a time in your life where you probably have been less than fully honest with the powers that be at your place of work. You needed a break, you needed a day off, you needed a mental health day, whatever it might be. But my guess is, if you did just fib a tiny bit, that your excuse wasn't as outlandish as some of the excuses that I found. So here is, for our, your enjoyment, the top 10 employee excuses for missing work, according to Reader's Digest. Are you ready for this? Number 10, I thought Flag Day was a legal holiday. Number nine, I hurt my back chasing a beaver. These are true, right? Number eight, my grandmother poisoned me with ham. Nana, what are you doing? Number seven, I was feeling too upset after watching The Notebook last night. It's number six, my llama won't stop barfing. Number five, a cow broke into my home and I have to wait for the insurance agent. Number four. I got stuck in the blood pressure machine at the grocery store. <laughs> Number three. I caught my uniform on fire by drying it in the microwave. Never a good idea. Number two. I accidentally got on a plane. <laughs> and number one. I have to attend the funeral of my wife's cousin's pet because I am an uncle and a pallbearer, right? I can send these to you later if you're looking for good excuses for work. We find in Exodus chapter 4 that Moses is in the business of making excuses, and perhaps he would have liked to have this list. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn to Exodus chapter 4. If not, fear not. They'll be on the screen in front of you. This is what is written. You remember the context. Moses is still at the burning bush with God. Moses answered God and said, What if they do not believe me or listen to me? And they say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. So Moses threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. And the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and turned it back into a, turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back in his cloak, and when he took it out, it, rest, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And, Moses, excuse me, and then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. 
But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, but I have never been eloquent of speech, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. And he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Word of God. Moses has excuses And if you listened well, you said, well, those are pretty good excuses. Unlike anything that I shared with you to start this sermon this morning. And you're right. And here's what we need to know. Even if things are absolutely true, does not mean they are not excuses. And even if something is absolutely true, Moses' statements are not false, they're true. Does not mean they're not excuses. So let's look at them. He really has three here. Uh, The first one that Moses says is, listen, no one's going to believe me. And this is true. And Moses has proof. We didn't cover this in chapter 2, but it's there for the reading if you want to check it out. Moses interacts with some Jewish people who are fighting with each other. And he simply says, don't fight against each other. You're both Jewish. And they dismiss him immediately. So he's got firsthand proof. The only time he's ever tried to speak to Jewish people, they dismissed him. And now he's supposed to come and say, hey, I ran into this bush that was on fire, and it never burned up. And then a voice from the bush said, hey, go down, you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and we're going to go. And all these Jewish people who have been making bricks for 400 years are going to say, yeah, that probably happened. We'll go with you. Right? This is a legitimate truth that Moses is saying. But God has an answer to this excuse. And God says, well, listen, I'm going to give you signs that are going to help you. And these signs are going to be for the people. And so the signs that God gives him, the first sign that God gives him is, he says, throw down your staff, and your staff turns into a snake. Can you imagine that happening in front of you? 
we would do exactly what Moses did, unless something's wrong with you, right? You would run from that thing. Maybe not Caleb, but everyone else would run, would run, would run from that thing, right? Moses flees from it. And God says, what are you running from? Pick that thing up by its tail, and it turns back into a staff. Why does the staff turn into a snake? It's interesting, isn't it? It likely turns into a snake because the snake was representative of the kingdom of Egypt. And Egypt had exerted power over Israel, and Israel was living in fear of it. So all of the pharaohs, many of the pharaohs, had a snake sort of on their headdress and different things. The snake represented the power of Egypt. God basically saying, I'm more powerful than that. And this sign is meant to show that. He says, maybe they don't believe that. Let's give you a second sign. And so the second sign, Moses sticks his hand in his cloak. It comes out leprous. Scholars uh, debate whether this term actually should be translated leprosy or not. Uh, Many don't believe it. It's some kind of skin disease or impalement that is obvious that is happening there. And it pulls it out, puts it back in, and it's cleansed, right? So what is this sign? The idea that God is going to restore his people. Very symbolic of what's meant to happen there. So God's power over what oppresses them and his desire to restore them. This is going to be powerful signs that enable Moses to show God's leadership. And he says, if they don't believe those two things, then I've got a third one. And he's very careful not to call this third one a sign. This third thing that he does is you go get a jar and you dip it in the Nile River. And the Nile River was everything for the people of Egypt. It was their full source of life. And you pull that out and it's going to spill it on the ground. It's going to be blood. Basically, once again, showing that God has the ability to overpower. The ability to change the narrative. What's fascinating to me is that the signs that God gives aren't just the external signs. There's actually something in there for Moses. You think about this as I read this? Moses actually has to do something for each of these three signs to happen. Here's what I want to suggest to you. That the signs that God intends to give to the people of Israel are certainly, absolutely front and center, His power that is shown in the miraculous signs. But actually, Moses' faith in God's power, is part of the sign. That in leading in faith, he's actually showing the people how they're meant to respond. You say, what do you mean faith? Well, look at exactly what Moses was asked to do in each of these signs. Throw your staff down, it becomes a snake. Moses' first reaction is to what? Run. God says, no, no, I want you to pick up the snake by the tail. Now, some of you are snake handlers. I doubt it, right? No one's a snake handler. Some of you have watched people do this on TV like me. You know what you're not supposed to do? Pick up the snake by the tail, right? You get that guy right by the front of the head so that, or right around the neck so that it can't bite you. What's going on here? Moses is actually taking a step of faith by grabbing this snake where he's called to do it. He's trusting in God's power almost without knowing he's doing it. See that? Incredible. What about the second one? Imagine, uh, let's just say for an instance, this is leprosy or some kind of, or if you prefer, some kind of crazy skin disease. God tells you to put your hand inside your cloak. You come out with this thing. 
the last thing you want to do at that point then is touch any part of your body because it's going to spread, right? So what does God ask Moses to do? Hey, stick it right back in there and touch yourself again. And Moses does it almost as if without thinking, subjecting himself to this disease and yet proving his faith in God. How fascinating. And the third one even more so, right? Because it's actually, if you read it, uh, it's not called a sign. And, oh, by the way, God doesn't demonstrate it to Moses before he goes, right? There's no pouring out of water and it turning to blood right there at the burning bush. Moses has just given this and said, I'll do it. And these become the signs. If you read into the beginning of the next chapter, you'll find that the people believe because of these signs. Moses' first excuse is, listen, no one's going to follow me. And God is, is in essence saying, I'm not expecting them to follow you. I'm expecting them to follow me. How often is it that we find ourselves perhaps called by God to something and our first thought is, well, no one's going to buy into this thing. This, of course, turns into Moses' second excuse. First one is dealt with. He's got to leave that one behind. The second excuse Moses says is, listen, I'm not an eloquent speaker, right? The text goes on to say I'm slow of speech or slow of tongue. Uh, if you read it in the original language, remember this, this is written in Hebrew. It's translated into English for us. In the original language, what it really says is, uh, I'm not a, literally, I'm not a man of words, right? I'm, just, I'm not a man of words. Uh, so scholars have debated for centuries and centuries, what's going on here? Uh, does he have a, a speech impediment? Is he stuttering? There's something wrong with him? That's possible. Some have said, well, he's, he's been 40 years in the desert. He no longer has the good Egyptian uh, speech that he used to have, and he's got to go talk to Pharaoh. Mm, could be, not likely, because most of what's going on here is Moses is worried about talking to the Jewish people. So others have proposed, well, man, maybe he doesn't really speak Hebrew very well, and that would make an awful lot of sense. Could be. Mm, the issue here, though, is the author is vague on purpose because it actually doesn't matter, does it? The point is, Moses is saying, I'm not good at this thing that you're calling me to do. I'm not a man of words. Literally, it says slow of speech. The word in Hebrew is heavy. I've got a heavy mouth and a heavy tongue. Right? So make of that what you want to make of that. And God's response to that is the response of, well, who is the creator of all things? Right? God immediately in his response goes to the reality of creation. As if to say two things, I think, are, implicate, are implications here. The first is, dude, I created you. I know what you're good at and not good at, and I'm calling you to this, right? And the second is, if I need to change something about you and I'm calling this to you, oh, by the way, I have the power to do it, right? When we think of God as creator in response to our excuses, this is, this is what we have to fully embrace. And then what's fascinating to me is God says, listen, I'll, I'll help you, and I'll teach you what to say. But the English translation actually misses out on the beauty of what's going on here. The Hebrew actually says, and I love this, it says, listen, I'll be with your mouth. <laughs> right? It's like, I'll be with your mouth. And I love that because for some of you, like talking or speaking, that's not, your, that's not the struggle that you might have. It could be any number of things. So take out the word mouth and insert the thing that you struggle with. And God says, I'll be with that. I can work with that. 
I know who you are. I love you. I've called you to this. And if I need to do something supernatural in the midst of it, oh, by the way, I can. How incredible. How often is it that in the midst of a call in our lives, the first thing we start to sort through is what we're not good at before actually asking, is God actually calling me to this? Incredible. This then turns to Moses' third and final excuse, which is not an excuse at all. It's actually begging off the job, right? Oh Lord, please send someone else, I believe was the translation that we read here, right? In essence, Moses has no more excuses to make. He finally has to get to the truth of what he intended to say all along. Or, if you want to use the ultimate pun, he no longer can beat around the burning bush. Right? And he has to be like, God, I don't want to do this, right? Can we just get honest here? Can we get down to brass tacks? Not interested. Thanks for thinking of me, but I don't want to do it, right? And this could be for any number of reasons. The truth of the excuses that he's already given, right? Uh, A a simple disinterest, like, sounds like an interesting thing, God. Mm, I'm not as passionate about it as you are. Or, more likely, dude, this is super scary, right? And the fears... And think about all the fears. What if it doesn't go well? What if I fail? What if I get injured? What if I get hurt? What if I get embarrassed? And all of these fears that are building up. We know that well because we're human. Moses finally is like, dude, send someone else. The actual Hebrew translation, if we were translating it literally, and I think this is important, is that Moses says, listen, do this by the hand of another. Right? Oh God, please, do this by the hand of another. You say, why is is that important? I'll tell you in a second. Now, God who has been answering these excuses, God's demeanor changes, doesn't it? The the Hebrew translated, he's burning with anger. (laughs) Can you picture that? The word anger in Hebrew could also be translated nose, and I love that, right? Because you know that picture of someone whose nose is burning because they're so angry. Their nostrils are flaring. And we have to ask, what what has changed, Right? God already knows Moses of these things, and they're true, and he's been graciously dealing with them all through his struggles here, but something has changed because now God's angry. We can't get around that. What's happened here? And I want to suggest to you that God's anger is with Moses' statement in the original language. Oh God, please do this by the hand of another. So you ready to learn another Hebrew word? The Hebrew word for hand is the word yad. Can you say that? Yad. Yad, right? And what's fascinating about the Hebrew word for hand is it also means power. So in the Old Testament, whenever something's done by someone's hand, it's done by their power. Are you starting to get it? Right? Moses has been processing all of this by, okay, the rescue of the, of the Israelites is going to be done in my power. And God's like, you're missing everything I've been saying. This is not about you. This is about me. In fact, if you listen to all the dialogue, there's no second-person pronouns at all. It's all first-person pronouns. Whenever Moses talks, it's I, 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 me, 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 me. Whenever God talks, it's I, 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 me, 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 me. Right? God never said you to Moses. It's not about Moses. But Moses never said you to God because he didn't understand it's about God, not about him. You see this? It's fascinating. And now Moses plays all his cards because he's like, listen, don't do this by my hand. Do this by the hand of another. It's almost as if you can see as a parent, right, or as a child talking to your parent, because we know communication both ways can be frustrating. You're like, I've said this a million times. 
can he, can I, what does it take to get this through, as my dad used to say, your thick skull? Right? What is it going to take to get this through your skull, Moses? Not about you. Not about your talents or your abilities. Not about if people will follow you. It's not about if you fail. Nothing's on the line for you. It's all about me. If it fails, it's on me. If they don't follow, it's on me. If they don't hear, it's on me. See, what God is asking Moses to do in all of this, patiently and now frustratingly, is get your focus off yourself and off the task and shift it to me and the call. You see that? These are two things. It's not semantical. It's super important, right? We tend as human beings, and somehow in our nature, our focus is on ourself, not on the God who has called us to something. And then even when we get to the brass tacks of what we're supposed to be doing, our focus is not on the call that God gives us. It's on the job that has to be done. And so when we focus on ourselves and on the job, we're processing everything through the wrong lenses that are saying, I've got to do this. How am I going to work? What if I fail? But if we're processing it through God and His call, then it's all about Him. And all it is is about faithfulness. About grabbing the snake by the hand and sticking your hand in your breastplate. You see that? But Moses, like us, right? We're very quick to get frustrated with these biblical characters. And I always remind myself, oh, thank God that my deeds are not recorded in Scripture for all of history to read my ineptness and colossal failures, right? Like, sermon, how many sermons could be preached? Don't do what Adam did, you know? Moses is just representative of humanity in so many ways here. Do you see? This is what we do. We can't, we can't. Our focus is all so misguided. And God says, listen, if you would only shift your focus, everything about this could be different. And so, at some level, Moses agrees, right? But there's something fascinating in here. <laughs> Because God, even in his burning anger, however you want to translate and take that, still meets him with grace, doesn't he? He's like, at that point, wouldn't you, if you were God, like, do you sometimes want to play God? I do that all the time, right? I'm like, okay, tried with Moses, plan B, right? This guy, whoa, can I even trust him down there? Right? We dismiss Moses so quickly. But God's like, no, your brother Aaron's on the way. He can go with you. Now, what's fascinating about that is not just that God met his need, but do you hear the language? Aaron was already on the way. God was already preparing for this. He already knew. He was already working to support Moses for what he would need. How incredible of a God do we serve? One of the things that you tend to ask out of, even though God keeps poking at you about them. Our gracious and persistent God believes in us a little more than we tend to believe in ourselves. Incredible. Well, friends, ultimately this Exodus story, as we've been saying all along, points to Jesus, not to us. This task that Moses has been given is monumental. And all too often we read the Scriptures, how? Not by looking at God, but by what? Looking at ourselves, right? Right? not by looking at the call, but by looking at the task. 
And so we say, okay, we've got to be like Moses here. Mm, sort of, and we'll get to that in a second. But we've got to think big picture here, right? God pretty likely hasn't called you to go to the very thing that personifies evil in the Old Testament, the unnamed Pharaoh of Egypt. Right? That's a Jesus task. Jesus ultimately is the one sent by God to stare evil and death in the face and not blink. And He comes humbly into our world, willing to take on the form of humanity and the limitations that it brings, willing to embrace the cross that ultimately leads to a resurrection, that ultimately leads to the final release of humanity from the enslavement of the greater oppressor. Not Egypt, but sin and death. When we read this story, we have to think about our Lord Jesus and His willingness to go. And ultimately, even in that night before His death on the cross, when He's wavering at some level in His human flesh in the garden, asking God if things could be changed, He still is willing to see the call over the task. Do you see it? Not my will, but your will. If you can change the task and still accomplish your will, please do it. (laughs) But the call is what I ultimately embrace. And we'll see in a couple of chapters that eventually Pharaoh relents and the Israelites are released into freedom. How? What is their freedom all about? To go and worship God and to live with Him, right? The release of slavery, I don't want to preach a sermon I'm going to preach in a couple of weeks, but the release of slavery is not just to not be a slave anymore, it's to be a worshiper of God, right? That's important because many of us don't, we like, we're free from something, but then we just stand there, right? You're free from something in order to be moved towards God, and all of this happens, but we'll keep pointing you to it. The big picture of this story is what Jesus has done. The resurrection sets anyone free who would believe in the Gospel so that you can worship God and dwell with Him forever because only true life is found there. So then what do we take from this story? How do we find ourselves in the midst of it? I've made a few suggestions already. Let's get down to it. At some level, initially, we have to see ourselves as part of the enslaved Israelites, right? If, if Jesus is the ultimate Moses who comes and speaks to the world the, the liberation that God intends to bring and then demonstrates the signs of His crucifixion and resurrection to speak to the power and the authority of God over all things, then we're left with a choice. And many of you who are here who have already made a decision to follow Jesus and to find life there. But some of you perhaps haven't. And this morning you have yet another opportunity to see that this narrative is actually the narrative that gives your life true meaning and gives you true identity. That Jesus is the one who sets you free. But if you have been set free by Jesus, if you were joined to Jesus, then Jesus Himself says a few fascinating things to you. Right? He says, listen, 
In the same way the Father sent me, so I send you. Or even more famously, if you're familiar with with what some people call the Great Commission, Jesus says to all His disciples, including us, if you're a follower of Jesus, He says, now go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, and I'm with you always. This is sort of burning bush language, isn't it? (laughs) Moses is like, who am I? We're like, who are we? How do we do this? And the point isn't who are you. The point is God is I am. And I am going with you. See, all of Moses' excuses were built in the I am not, right? I am not. I'm not someone who people are going to follow. God says, but I am omnipotent and I'm with you. Moses says, I am not someone who can speak eloquently the way it needs to be. So I'm not a man of words. And God says, but I am the creator of all things, and I'm going with you. Moses says, I am not someone of power. It's not by my hand. And God says, I am, and I'm going with you. And Jesus says the same thing to his disciples. Listen, I'm sending you out, right? Part of what it means to worship God is to engage in his call on your life. Jesus said that himself. He said, listen, he's speaking to God the Father in John chapter 17. He says, listen, I have brought you glory, Jesus says, right? In other words, I have worshipped you holistically. How? By accomplishing the work you've given me to do. Now Jesus has given us work too. And a main way that we engage in worship, we come on Sundays and we sing, and that's good, and that's right, that's worship. But we're meant to worship with our whole lives. The main way we engage in that is to take up this call that Jesus has given us. Jesus has spoken uh, to Pharaoh. We're called to speak to our neighbors. Jesus has stared sin and death in the eyes and defeated it. We're told to tell people about it by loving our neighbors and by calling them in to this thing called Christianity. And your response, I know, because it's my response, is, well, I don't think anyone's going to believe me. There's a good chance they might not. <laughs> and you say, well, God gave Moses signs. There's this famous statement of Jesus where people are like, give us signs, give us signs. Now, mind you, by this time, Jesus has like cast out, I don't know, 1.2 million demons and healed like 800,000, raised people from the dead, and they're like, give us signs, give us signs. Can you imagine Jesus like, come on, guys. He says, listen, you adulterous generation, he says, you know, big language. So the ultimate sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah who was in the belly of the fish for three days. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Right? There's no greater sign. You don't need a staff that turns into a snake. You know why? Because Jesus in his death and resurrection has crushed the head of the ultimate serpent. Genesis 3.15 You don't need a hand that is leprous and is cleansed. Why? Because in his death and his resurrection, all sin is forgiven for anyone who is in Christ. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far is our sin removed from us. Though we were red as scarlet, now we are white as snow. Cleansed, transformed, 
clean. The miracles, the signs that you have as ambassadors of the gospel is the resurrection of Christ and the transformation of your life. Do you see it? And actually, there are no greater miracles that could ever be performed in this world. But it's not just about the power of God. It's about your faith in the power of God that is demonstrated by how you engage with those around you. You say, okay, fine. But I am not a man or woman of words. Maybe you'd be even willing to say that your tongue is heavy. Another way to translate that word heavy is dull. You like that better? I've got a dull mouth. <laughs> I've got a heavy mouth. I've got a dull mouth. And God says, listen, it's never been about your words. And for many of you, it's not about words, right? It's about other things. Ah, I'm not bold. I'm shy. I'm more introverted. You think God doesn't know that? He created you. He's not asking you to be something you're not. He's asking you to believe that He is what He says He is and to live in response to it. And oh, by the way, the same God who is with Moses' mouth is with your introversion. Right? The same God who is with Moses' mouth is with your uh, heart that needs a little more courage or a little more boldness. Right? The same God who is with Moses' mouth is with all the things. What is God calling you to? Right? What's He asking of you? What's He prompting you towards? How's He calling you to love those who are in your spheres of influence? And how are your initial responses me and task-focused rather than God and call-focused? Perhaps one of your main responses is, oh, I don't have time. Could we say? I don't know. I'm not trying to be overly forceful here, that the God who's with Moses' mouth will also be with your calendar. The God who's with Moses' mouth will also be with your energy. That doesn't mean that you overextend yourself or you be foolish or you dive headfirst into something that you're not called to. What does it mean to look and shift your focus to God and to the call rather than yourself <clears throat> in the task? And then once we work through all of these things, we really have to come to the moment where we get honest with God. You know, at the core of it, God, the issue is, I actually just don't want to do this. Right? For a myriad of reasons. Mm, not interested. Mm, super scared. And I don't mean to make light of any of these, because every single day, this is the wrestle of my life, just so you know. Right? What if I fail? What if they don't listen to me? What if it breaks the relationship? What if I, what if I look foolish? Right? One of my big fears in life is what if I'm embarrassed? Right? I don't like doing anything I don't know that I'm half decent at. Right? So I never dance. So I already know that I'm not good at it. Why would I do it publicly? That would be embarrassing to me. Right? All right immediately tonight, God's going to appear to me in a dream and tell me I have to like, dance in front of everyone. And then I'll, I'll go through the whole thing. You get it. Right? I mean, say that to be funny, but you get it. You know who you are. You know your limitations. You know whatever. You know? And at the core of it, is it true that we're saying to God, mm, do it by the hand of another? Is the issue that we actually have failed to believe that God intends to accomplish this by His own hand, by His own power, 
and instead have shifted it onto our shoulders. We said it last week. We'll say it again this week. God uses imperfect, unpowerful, somewhat inept people. Why? Because it magnifies His power. Or as one commentator said it, God likes to use desert-weary people to announce freedom from the desert to others. You get it? So what is God calling you into? How's He tugging on your heart? How's He encouraging you to love your neighbor? Or to invite someone to your community group table gathering? Or invite someone to come check out Hope? Is He prompting you towards maybe starting a a new kind of ministry? I just had lunch with someone this past week who God's been prompting them, prompting them, finally said, I guess i got to do it. I said, yeah, this is a good thing. How's God moving? If we process in the same way that Moses processed, we will always be looking for reasons not to. Now listen, sometimes what we think God is doing is not actually what He's doing. But oftentimes, we excuse ourselves from things that God actually is calling us into. We say, God, nope, not by me. And God actually is saying to you, yes, by you. Well, yes, through you, by me. But you don't have to do it by yourself because Aaron's on the way. Look to your left right now. And then look to your right. Take a look behind you. Take a look in front of you. To my knowledge, none of these people are named Aaron, and yet every single one of them is Aaron. Right? Yeah, they are. We get to do this as a family. We get to fall on our face in failure and rise in success, but it's all about God. And we get to do it together. He doesn't ask us to do it on our own. This is what it means to be part of this. This, by the way, is why it's significant that you're here on Sundays. Not because you've got to receive something, but we need you. When you're not here, we miss you. The encouragement that you bring, the energy that you bring, the part that you have to play in all of this. We need Aaron. Because we're just like Moses. Don't you see it? And here you are. We get to all do it together. How kind of God. How beautiful of God. Even when his nostrils burn a little, because we've got a lot of reasons not to. He's like, that's all right. Your community group's on the way. That's all right. Hope Alliance is on the way. That's all right. Your extended family who are believers, they're with you. It's going to be okay. This is not by your power. This is not your yod. It's the yod of Yahweh. So how about it? Moses, as if for a last gasp, goes to his father-in-law and cooks up some crazy thing. You hear him say, hey, I guess i got to go down to Egypt to see if any of these Jewish people are even still alive. Right? <laughs> After all the things God has said to him, at some level it almost seems like, it's like this is his last gasp. Well, maybe Jethro will say, I can't go. And as if God already knew that too. How does Jethro respond? You go, baby. You have my blessing. Right? 
And so Moses saddles up the donkey. We don't know the emotions going through his head. Throws Gershom, his son, and his wife, and heads out to Egypt. And man, is that a beautiful and yet broken story. And it's our story. It's the story of the gospel. Can I pray with you?